And Rhino, he's not even an issue. I don't sweat Rhino. Rhino's got him set up on the rope right here. I'm your host, Dan Rhino, and we are continuing our journey through the history of women's wrestling, something that I started back in Women's History Month, back in March, recording this, thinking I would maybe it would maybe just be a one, maybe two episode thing, and I quickly realized that in order to do this right, and anything worth doing is worth doing right. I would need to expand the series here, and we've gone all the way from the very roots of women's wrestling, all the way up uh, to last time we continued our journey through the mid to late 80s, talking about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling television program and the lasting legacy, both good and bad, that Glow left on women's wrestling, and then we moved into the 1990s in the WWF and talked about two of the more polarizing figures in women's wrestling, two ladies that were actually known more for their work and the drama they caused outside of the ring rather than their in-ring work, and that being Sonny and Sable. And those two ladies are really going to bridge us into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Some of the ladies that we're going to talk about today, and we're going to highlight a couple and then also mention... Uh, several more that were prominent in this area because today we're going to talk about more of the prominent figures of the Attitude Era and no lady loomed larger in the Attitude Era than Joni Lauer who you know better as China and China was uh, somebody who had always been a fitness nut since high school and had always been taller than Definitely the girls, but uh, a lot of the boys when she was in middle school, uh, in elementary school especially. And like I said, she really became a fitness nut in high school and ended up going to college. But like so many of us that go to college, we do it because we kind of feel like that's just the next logical step. But we really don't have any direction of, of what comes next. And China saw pro wrestling on television and something clicked and Joni did some research found out about Killer Kowalski's wrestling school in Massachusetts and for $2,000 Kowalski started training her and it wasn't long before Joni was booked on some independent shows and she was just so different from the other women in the business because of her size because of her frame and her power 
So despite being super, super green in the ring, Joni was working pretty consistently on the indies. And in fact, her first match in 1995 was against a man dressed in drag because there were no other ladies available. Especially in, in pro wrestling in general, but especially in the independents. There was not a lot of female talent on the independents at the time. And definitely none that were the size of China. So her first match was actually, actually against a man dressed as a woman. But Joni had much bigger aspirations than wrestling on the indies. And she set her sights on what she saw on TV, getting the attention of the WWF. And she actually went to the Holiday Inn when the WWF came to town. The Holiday Inn in Massachusetts by where she was training and, and staying at the time. And she brought all of her photos, all of her VHS tapes, and tried to get the attention of any of the WWF agents that were staying there. And the only people that actually didn't brush her off were Triple H and Shawn Michaels. And Joni and Triple H had something in common, as they were both had been trained by Killer Kowalski. And Triple H and Shawn saw Joni, saw the potential in her, and went to Vince McMahon and suggested that the company bring her in as their bodyguard. Unfortunately, at the time, Vince just didn't see it. McMahon thought Joni didn't have enough experience, didn't think people would accept a woman hitting the guys and even getting over on some of them. But Joni definitely had made an impression on Triple H and Sean, and by the time 1996 rolled around, Vince McMahon eventually catered to what the boys wanted, and China debuted at In Your House 13 during Triple H's match against Goldust. And she became the bodyguard of DX. And you probably remember the famous scene of China picking up Terry Runnels, a.k.a. Marlena, and just woman-handling her, just <laughs> ragdolling her. And it's, it's probably one of the more uh, lasting images that, that we have of China, especially of the early years of, of China in the WWF. And, and we know the DX guys love to generate heat, and having a female bodyguard did just that. And China really cemented her legacy during this time as kind of the anti-diva, because the majority of the women's roster in the WWF was having bra and panty matches, evening gown matches, pudding matches. What China was going at it in the ring with The Rock, Stone Cold, and Mick Foley. And China became the first woman ever to compete in the Royal Rumble, and this was nearly two decades before a women's Royal Rumble match ever existed. Uh, China made it to the second round of the 1999 King of the Rain tournament, beating Val Venus in round one. And in probably China's biggest pro wrestling accomplishment, she defeated Jeff Jarrett at the No Mercy pay-per-view and became the first woman to hold the Intercontinental title. Uh, China went on to trade the IC title in a feud with Chris Jericho, and they had a then she had a memorable on-screen angle with Eddie Guerrero as Eddie's mamacita. But uh, toward the end of her WWF run, China actually started competing more frequently against the ladies, which is something that she was not 
into. It's not something that she saw as believable as the other ladies being able to hang with her. She saw herself as somebody who would be able to hang with the guys. But as her run in WWF continued, it started to transition more into uh, wrestling the ladies. And she ended up squashing Ivory at WrestleMania to win her first women's title. And this was the culmination of an angle where Ivory was protesting China's Playboy spread. Uh, Ivory was part of the Right to Censor group, which was kind of a play on the... I believe it was the, the PTC, the Parents Television Council at the time, that was against all of the raunchy programming that WWE was, was putting on. But China ended up, I believe, winning with uh, a foot on the chest of ivory for the one, two, three, just to kind of seal home the, the fact that China didn't really see her, herself as being in competition with these other ladies and these other ladies being on her level. And like I said, that, that Playboy spread by China was one of the, the highest selling issues of Playboy of all, of all time. So there w- it was kind of a mixed bag for China. She was starting to have a lot of mainstream success. Uh, maybe saw herself eventually transitioning into Hollywood. Unfortunately, personal issues started to wear on China. And she was in an off-screen romantic real-life relationship with Triple H. But when Triple H's storyline romance with Stephanie McMahon became a real romance, that left China in a really terrible position because she's basically dumped by her boyfriend slash co-worker while the boyfriend hooks up with one of her bosses and all three of you have to see each other on a regular basis. So China asked for a $1 million downside guarantee to her new contract. And that was a number at the time only reserved for the Stone Cold Steve Austins in the company. Because China feels that an exorbitant amount of money is really the only thing that could convince her that it was worth staying around the Triple H Stephanie situation and all the pain that that was coming with that and would no doubt continue to come with that. So Jim Ross, who's working talent relations at the time, offers a $400,000 guarantee. And that's that's the downside guarantee. That's the very least amount that she would make. And, and Jim Ross has gone on record as saying he was confident that China would likely make at least twice that amount and would probably approach a at least in the ballpark of that $1 million downside guarantee that she was looking for. But he couldn't just offer that because, like I said, that would put her up as big of a star and as big as a money draw as Stone Cold. But the Triple H Stephanie stuff was just too much for her, and China turns down that $400,000 downside guarantee. And unfortunately, that's really the end of China as a prominent figure in wrestling. Because at the time, there's no WCW to go to. So China does a couple shots with New Japan and a couple shots with TNA, but never gets anywhere near the level of success that she had with the WWF. And it all kind of came to an end because of, of the personal relationship between her and Triple H and how that turned into the personal relationship between Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. And sadly, China 
is just another example of this recurring theme with a few of these ladies that we've talked about. She's another example of someone who left us way too soon. And she passed away in, in 2016 at the age of only 46 due to an overdose. And it's, it, it's, it's really unfortunate because the, the Triple H Stephanie thing is, is something no one saw coming. It wasn't anyone's fault. It's not something that you can control. We can't control who we fall in love with. We can't control who we fall out of love with. But it hurt China so bad on an emotional level that it really was the beginning of her downward trajectory. But the glimmer of light that we have at the end of, of the China rhetoric here is the fact that China was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2019 as a member of D-Generation X. Fully deserving. I, I wish she had gone in as an individual, and, and maybe she still will go in as an individual because of her impact on the business, but it, it was a nice little footnote uh, to the end of the story of Joni Lauer. You know, it her life did not end on, on positive circumstances, but at least there was several years where she was kept out of the Hall of Fame because of her extracurricular activities outside of the business. But at least there is some semblance of a of a positive ending uh, to the China story here, and maybe she still will be uh, featured in uh, as an independent member of the Hall of Fame someday. Another one of the more prominent ladies of the Attitude Era was the woman who would go on to, speaking of the Hall of Fame, would go on to become the youngest WWE Hall of Famer of all time when she was inducted, and that is Trish Stratus. Uh, Trish was one of the many ladies during this era that were able to overcome the stigma of women, particularly in the WWE, being just seen as sex objects and taking part in bra and panties matches. And she, along with wrestlers like Jacqueline and Molly Holly and Ivory and Victoria, really did a lot to bring legitimacy back to women's wrestling in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And we talked about how China just kind of stumbled upon wrestling later in life, but Trish was a huge wrestling fan growing up, even saying that her sister and her would put on wrestling matches with their Barbie dolls, and they started their own wrestling federation with her brothers and sisters and forced their parents to watch them. And like China, Trish was a fitness fanatic, which led to her career as a fitness model, which is where WWE discovered her. And as a big wrestling fan growing up, Trish jumped at the chance to learn how to wrestle and be a part of the WWE. So Trish began training with Ron Hutchinson in Toronto, and she was the only female trainee in the gym. And the other guys and her coaches tried to scare her off of the business, but Trish was super determined to make it work. And in 2000, Trish became a full-fledged member of the active roster. She was the manager for Test and Albert. She took a powerbomb through a table from Bubba Ray Dudley. She had an Indian strap match against Lita. But she was still very green in the ring as a performer at the time. And because of that, wasn't really taken seriously as a wrestler. She was more as 
more of a decoration for other people's feuds and for other people's matches. And in 2001, we kind of had the low point of what a lot of the women were subjected to at the time and really summed up how women were truly seen in the eyes of WWE around that time in the early 2000s. And that was when Trish was put in a storyline where she was Vince McMahon's mistress, while Linda McMahon gets put in a mental health facility and is put on drugs that zone her out because of the collapse of her marriage to Vince. She's just in this like catatonic state. And Vince and Trish are having these groping make-out sessions every week right in front of Linda, which is super awkward and hard to watch in and of itself. But the worst part came in March of 2001 when Vince tried to assert his dominance over Trish in the storyline by forcing her to get down on her knees, bark like a dog, strip down to her underwear in the middle of the ring. No doubt one of the lowest moments in Raw history. It rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way, but the if there is a saving grace to it, the saving grace of the angle was that it made the crowd feel sympathy for Trish and kind of started a babyface turn for her. And Trish completes the babyface turn at WrestleMania 17 by slap, slapping Vince in the face and Trish finished the year on a high note uh, with on the in-ring side by winning the women's title for the first time at Survivor Series. And this would be the first of seven title reigns for Trish Stratus. Uh, by, the, by the next year, Trish had held the hardcore title. She was a three-time women's champion. And she just seemed to be getting better and better every time she went in the ring. And Trish really credits her improvement to working with ladies like Molly Holly and Victoria and especially uh, she puts over Jazz as being somebody who helped her improve her in-ring work and eventually at least to some extent some of the fans that were watching the shows just to see as Jerry Lawler would say the puppies some of the fans were starting to appreciate, at least to some extent, the quality of the women's matches that they were seeing. Because there's there was still a large section of fans who still just saw it as sex appeal and just or just saw it as an opportunity to, to grab a snack. But if you looked closely, you you saw that there was a marked improvement in the in ring uh, quality of matches that you were getting, however short they were. And Trish was one of the people who was kind of uh, spearheading that effort. And one of the highlights of Trish's career came on December 6th, 2004, when she defended her women's title against Lita in a match that main evented Raw. And that was the first time, December 6th, 2004, that a women's match had ever main evented Raw and we look to where the women have gotten today to where they're not only main eventing Raw but they're take, taking part in Hell in a Cell and they're main eventing WrestleManias and uh, main, main eventing uh, other pay-per-views and getting their own pay-per-view uh, years later but this was really kind of the first big moment of that with that match with Trish defending her 
women's title against someone who would become one of her best friends in real life, but one of her more bitter rivals on screen, and that being Lita uh, back in 2004. And maybe Trisha's most fondly remembered storyline happened in late 2005 to 2006 when Mickey James was introduced as Trisha's stalker who was obsessed with her slash in love with her. And we're going to be talking about Mickey James more prominently in our next episode. But this feud led to an excellent match at WrestleMania 22, one of the best matches of Trisha's career when Mickey beat Trish for the women's title, ending Trish's uh, women's title reign at 448 days. And in August of that same year, Trish announced that she would actually be retiring, uh, despite you know only being in her 30s. Her last match, retirement match, took place at the Unforgiven pay-per-view in her hometown of Toronto, and Trish would actually defeat Lita in that retirement match to win the women's title for a seventh time, and she did something that not a lot of people get to do. She retired as champion, and that is an honor that very few in the history of pro wrestling, not just women's wrestling, but just pro wrestling in general, get. And retirement stuck for a while with Trish. You know, we ever... You never say that anybody's ever truly retired in pro wrestling. But, you know, Trish retired back in 2006 when I believe she was only 31 years old at the time. Or maybe maybe just 30 years old at the time. And she retired as champion and then seven years later would go into the WWE Hall of Fame at the age of 37. Like we said before, becoming the youngest inductee ever in the history of the WWE Hall of Fame. And but like we said, no one ever truly retires in pro wrestling, just like in comic books. Nobody ever is really gone forever. And when the women finally had the opportunity to have their own Royal Rumble in 2018, who was the surprise number 30 entrant? No none other than Trish Stratus. Even getting the opportunity to square off against Mickey James in the ring once again in that Royal Rumble. And later in 2018, Trish wasn't done. The WWE held their first ever all-women's pay-per-view titled Evolution. And Trish returned the team with her old rival Lita to defeat Mickey James and Alicia Fox. And at SummerSlam the, the next year, Trish had her final match again. For now, at least. So, we'll see if this retirement actually sticks. But, SummerSlam 2019, Trish had her final match, losing in a dream match. An excellent match. Excellent way for Trish to go out against Charlotte Flair. Possibly the best women's wrestler of all time. And like I said, Trish and China are probably the two most well-known women's competitors of this 1990s, early 2000s, we call it kind of the attitude era into the pre-divas era. So there isn't really a name for that connection bridge there between the attitude era and the divas era, which we haven't really dove uh, into yet. But call it the the pre-divas era, the end of the attitude era, the pre-divas era. But we would be remiss not to mention some of the other prominent ladies of the time. And some of them I didn't go into detail 
too much today because they're going to uh, be more prominently featured on future episodes. And especially next episode, uh, when we talk about the TNA Impact Knockouts, and then uh, when we talk about the Divas era as well. But shout out to ladies like Lita, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, somebody who, you know, brought a, a different style to uh, to women's wrestling that that we hadn't seen in WWE. She was more of the high flyer. She was more. Uh, she came in with the. Uh, with S.A. Rios and, and transitioned over to the, the Hardy Boys and really adopted that high-flying luchador style that we had not really seen before. And, and just the, the unique look that, that Lita had uh, with, the, with the clothes that she wore and the, the presentation. Uh, somebody like Ivory, who we talked about on the Glow episode, Jazz, uh, Jacqueline, a.k.a. Miss Texas, a.k.a. Jackie Moore, one of the baddest women in wrestling history. Molly Holly. And then uh, also ladies like Tori Wilson and Terry Runnels and Stacey Keebler, who may not have been the best in-ring technicians, but they were certainly memorable in this era. And like any era in wrestling, not just women's wrestling, but all wrestling, there were low points and high points with the era that we talked about today. But that's just part of the journey. And we thank you for being on this journey with us because it has been a lot of work, but it has also been a lot of fun uh, to kind of change the format here in the Rhino Wrestling Review and take it more in a, a historical direction rather than talking about uh, current stuff, kind of talking about how the current stuff got here. What was the road that was paved uh, for the current product, especially when we talk about the ladies uh, wrestling and how prominent it is featured uh, here in 2021 as we, as we record this. But I appreciate you being on this journey with me. I thank you to everybody who downloads and listens and subscribes. Shoot me an email, rhinowrestlingreview at gmail.com. Let me know what you think about the show. Uh, but you can ask me anything. Ask me anything about the current product. Uh, ask me anything about the shows that you listen to. Ask me anything about rumors that you're hearing. And I will definitely get back to you. Uh, we like to do mailbag episodes from time to time. So we might, uh, even if I don't answer it, on air, though, I will uh, respond to 100% of the emails uh, that we get and um, might even give you a little shout out here on the air. But you can find this podcast on all podcast platforms, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. If you cannot find the Rhino Wrestling Review, you're not trying very hard. Uh, but shout out to everybody who. Uh, downloads and listens and subscribes leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to uh, you can hear if you if this is not enough of me you can hear more of me on my buddy's podcast uh, that being stf underground with doug e wrestling and mr main event i'm on there uh, mostly every week uh, it drops every friday on every podcast platform that's stf underground and uh St at STF Underground on Twitter. Uh, I am at Dan Rhino on Twitter. The show is at Rhino underscore Wrestling. That's at R Y N O underscore Wrestling on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time when we talk about the TNA Impact Knockouts and how they carved out their own little piece of women's wrestling history 
next time here on the Rhino Wrestling Review. And until then, don't kick out of each other's finishers. See ya! Hey, it's the R to the Y, N to the O, on a block like a tortoise with a slow, on a block like a baker cause I'm picking up my dough, and when I'm in the booth, like I'm cooking up a O.